just tuned in. You're listening to Victim to Victorious on the Black Talk Radio Network. My name is Angel Fall, and this is another edition of Victims to Victorious. Each and every week, we take a look at gun violence and the public health protocols, policies, and sentiments that could eradicate and mitigate the number of people who die from gun violence in the United States especially the overrepresented gun violence death of African-American males. The title of today's show is Violence and the Virus. Violence and the Virus, a look at Chicago and death by gunfire and death by COVID-19. We've done a couple of shows like that, uh, but this week uh, what facilitates this is the Sun-Times Media Wire, Wire article that came out June 1st. 92 shot, 27 fatally, in Chicago's most violent weekend of 2020. Now, I want to put this in the context of COVID-19. Of course, Chicago, Illinois. Uh, Chicago is in Illinois. They're on Central Time. We are broadcasting uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, on Eastern Time. Chicago is in Central Time. And this state of Illinois Health Department is reporting 128,415 cases of COVID-19. It's important for you to know as the listener that cases of um, COVID-19 or being infected by the virus, that does not necessarily mean you will die. Of the 128,000 current effect infections, that's called the burden, burden of disease, there are 5,924 deaths in Chicago as of June 7th. On the same day this was recorded, 867 new cases were diagnosed. And I did the math um, in the total death count for June 7th are the numbers from June 6th. The Chicago Tribune uh, reports that on May 26th, 1,003 people had been shot year-to-date in Chicago, and that's 128 more than last year. So we're looking at the virus in Chicago, and we're calling this violence and the virus. So the article I'm going to read today is rather lengthy, and today's show will be abbreviated by about 10 or 15 minutes. Hopefully, if you've been following me since last year, you know that um, we want these problems solved. We're not sensationalizing them. We're saying that there are preventions and interventions that can be in place. And when you use a public health model for violence, there are preventions. Those of you who have been listening to the radio and TV and various um, people coming on television, like the Surgeon General, we all know that COVID-19 can be prevented with hand washing. If someone coughs or sneezes and you have a mask on, the um, pathogen that's in the postulates of uh, mucus will land on your mask first and not get direct contact with your mouth or nose. That is a prevention. This show has been inspired by the epidemiologist Lisa Rose Rodriguez, who advocates interpersonal conflict resolution as an intervention. And there are people using various permutations of this, like the organization Cure Violence in Chicago, who also is doing pandemic outreach during 
this pandemic. So Chicago has really been hit with two epidemics. They've been living under the siege of gun violence and they are the epicenter in the Midwest of the most amount of cases in the entire Great Lakes region. Furthermore, before I continue, I want to um, say to the listeners, if you, and if you are on the internet, you can look at the funeral services for George Floyd in his home state of Texas. And those were streaming live at the time that I started recording. So returning to the article, 92 shot, 27 fatally in Chicago's most violent weekend of 2020. 27 people were killed and at least 65 others were wounded by gun violence in Chicago's most violent weekend over the years so far. Now some media outlets were reporting that this was the most violent weekend in the history of the Chicago, even given the great Chicago uh, gangs head by Al Capone. More than half of the weekend victims were shot on Sunday as the city reeled from violent protests Saturday that led to hundreds of arrests and the implementation of a curfew. And of course, those protests were about police brutality, particularly as it relates to the murder of George Floyd with the policeman putting his knee on the the defenseless man's neck for eight minutes causing asphyxiation. This was watched by, I believe, three other policemen. One of them was his brother-in-law. All three of them were subsequently fired. It's a teenage young lady who took the video on her camera and other, on her phone camera, and other people can be heard telling the policemen to, to let the man up because, of course, he cannot breathe. So the incidents that we t- talked about last week are totally connected to this. Amnesty International was reporting on last week's show that the police have been using violence themselves here in the United States to push down the protesters who are protesting their violence. Returning to the article, the article is very long and I plan to read most of it. The latest, because most of it details victims by victims with names and circumstances. And very often here on Victims to Victorious, I'd like to honor the victims by mentioning them because each person killed is someone's child. Many of the men killed are fathers already. Many of the women killed are mothers already. There are names to go with these places and faces. Officers responding to a shop spotter alert for gunfire found the 18-year-old shot in the right side of her head at 10.51 p.m. in the 4200 block of West Van Buren Street according to Chicago police. She was pronounced dead at the scene. Several hours before that, a man was killed and two other people were wounded in Austin on the west side. They were standing outside with a group about 8.30 p.m. in the 5100 block of West Madison Street where someone fired shots, according to police. The 27-year-old man was hit in the leg and taken to Stroger Hospital. He was transferred to Mount Sinai where he was pronounced dead. An 18-year-old man, woman, I'm sorry, was shot three times in the leg, and a 20-year-old man was hit in the foot, police said. Both were taken to Mount Sinai in fair condition. And if you've been following us, uh, especially when we talk about Chicago, reporters name the hospitals. And why is that important? These hospitals are set up to take gunshot wounds. Gunshot wounds take up a tremendous amount of the resources. 
And Mayor Lightfoot of Chicago, for instance, has been known to come on TV and say, in so many words, stop shooting each other so we can have the emergency room for COVID-19. The COVID-19 um, epidemic, according to the mayor's office, is going to cost Chicago around $700 million, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, if I have that number wrong, you can leave a comment on the show when it's archived at blacktalkradionetwork.com. Now, this article, actually, this article does not name all the victims. The Chicago Sun-Times article and the Chicago Tribune article on the shooting does, in fact, name the victims. If you notice as I go through them, there are some circumstances that are similar. The ages, um, the ages are going to be about between 18 and 35, for instance. An 18-year-old woman was shot three times. That's where we left off. She was taken to Mount Sinai in fair condition. Another man was killed, and half an hour later, earlier in the Burnside, in Burnside on the south side. He was driving about 8 p.m. in the 900 block of East 93rd Street when someone in a dark-colored Grand Prix started shooting, police said. The man was hit several times in the head and crashed his vehicle in the same block moments later. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Earlier this e that evening, one man was killed and another one was injured on the back of the yards on the south side. They were in a vehicle at 6.43 p.m. in the 4600 block of South Marshfield Avenue when someone fired shots. Police said a 26-year-old man was hit in the chest and taken to Stroger Hospital where he was pronounced dead. The other man, 20, was shot in the leg and taken to the University of Illinois Hospital in fair condition. The one thing about Chicago that you'll notice is that there are a variety of hospitals, hospitals who can, in fact, handle gunshot wounds. Other cities may have one acute care hospital. Um, and, of course, all cities dealing with COVID-19 have a lot of restrictions on who can use the emergency room first. The doctors have a rule, a word called treatment efficacy, and that means that they decide who the cure will work for the best. So in other words, if there's an 85-year-old person with um, emphysema and asthma and he has to use a ventilator and they have to make a choice between the 85-year-old person who has asthma and him using the ventilator and a 25-year-old person who, has, who doesn't have asthma and using the ventilator, the doctor is allowed to make a decision based on treatment efficacy. For whom will the treatment or cure work the best? The next one. Another man was killed more than three hours before that in the same neighborhood, and that was the South Marsh Marshfield Avenue. An 18-year-old was shot in the chest about 3.20 p.m. in the 400 block of South Aspen Avenue, according to police. He was dropped off at Stroger Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. If you just tuned in, we are about five minutes into this this week's show, Victim to Vic, Victims to Victorious. My name is Angel Fall. My sound engineer is Scotty Reed. He's also founder of the Black Talk Radio Project. You can leave a comment on the Black Talk Radio Network site for me. Scroll down and look for my show, Victims to Victorious, and tell us, are you in Chicago when you heard this? Do you know someone who got shot and has COVID-19? What other things uh, would you like us to talk about? Our focus is on the public health solution to gun violence. 
A 36-year-old man was fatally shot earlier Sunday in Inglewood. Someone in a vehicle pulled up and shot him in the chest about 12.37 a.m. in the 6800 block of South Laughlin Street, police said. The man identified, <clears throat> and again, this article doesn't have as many names as the Chicago Tribune article. The man identified as Angelo Bronson of Ashburn was pronounced dead at the University of Chicago Medical Center at 1.11 a.m., according to police and the Cook County Medical Examiner's Office. On Saturday, a man was shot to death in River North and downtown, amid downtown protests. You see, it's not clear who's doing the shooting. Quite frankly, in a situation like that, that, that may very well remain unsolved, but we have also reported as well, most black-on-black homicides are never solved. Part of it is the familiarity with the shooter. The shooters often belong in the same circle, socially, or they are they have a consanguine relationship. That means they are blood relatives, or they have some type of business relationship, be it illicit or or or, or legitimate. Bernardino Mercado, 26, was walking on the sidewalk with another male about 11 p.m. in the hundred block of West Hubbard Street, where he exchanged words with the male suspect in a car. Time and time again, I say, better interpersonal conflict resolution would lead to better outcomes. The article goes on. The suspect then got out of the car and started hitting the male with a handgun. He then shot Mercado in the chest before continuing to hit the other person with a gun. The suspect eventually got back in the car and drove away. So there he has two victims. One, the perpetrator shoots one and the other one he beats with the gun. And in previous shows about domestic violence, we talk about the fact that the gun is used to threaten, but the gun can, is also used as a weapon or a mallet or like a hammer to hit and scare the woman who's involved in this type of abusive relationship. So this is interesting. He, the victim, one victim was pistol, pistol whipped and the other victim was shot in the chest. Mercado was the victim we're discussing lived in the Avondale, lived in Avondale on the northwest side. He was pronounced dead at the scene, police and the medical examiner's office said. Five other people were injured downtown shooting during the protest. Earlier Saturday night, a man was killed in the shooting in Belmont Central, the northwest side. Bernardo de Leon, 34, was shot twice in the chest at 9.51 p.m. in the 2300 block of North Mead Avenue, authorities said. De Leon, who lived in Belmont Central, was, was pronounced dead at the scene. Less than three hours before that, a 26-year-old man was shot to death in Chicago Lawn on the south side. Officers responding to shop spotter alert about 7.19 p.m. The 2900 block of West 63rd Street found him with multiple gunshot wounds. Chicago police said he was taken to Christ Medical Center in Oak Lawn, where he was pronounced dead. The Cook County Medical Examiner's Office identified him as Noel Dominguez of Berwyn. So we are seeing Latino surnames. That does not mean the person isn't black. And whatever affects the African-American community also affects the Latino community because of similar demographics. The main difference between people born in Mexico or El Salvador or Guatemala is that they're actually born in another country. Once these 
populations are urbanized and live in close proximity to each other, some of these statistics begin to mirror one another. Earlier this morning, a man was killed in Austin. Officers found David L. Green unresponsive about 8.30 a.m. in the 800 block of North Laurel, North Laurel Avenue with a gunshot wound to the left side of his body under his arm, authorities said. He was pronounced dead at the scene. Listen to how many of these people are just dying out there in the street, literally, on the sidewalk, in the street. That is not a way that you envision your mother, your husband, your boyfriend, your baby daddy, your brother. That is not a way you envision their death. It is not a peaceful death. It is a violent death. So Cure Violence in Chicago, and I hope to interview their um, founder, Dr. Slutkin, and several of the violence interrupters, they will tell you that part of their paradigm is to interrupt the retaliatory shooting that occur when one person is killed and his crew, his boys, her family, et cetera, they want revenge. Several hours before that, another man was fatally shot in West Pullman on the far south side. Gregory A. Lewis was 21, riding in the vehicle at 2.54 a.m. in the 500 block of East 115th Street, where someone shot him from a passing car, authorities said. Lewis, who lived in West Pullman, was hit in the neck and chest and driven to Roseland Community Hospital, where he was pronounced dead. Minutes earlier, a woman was shot to death in Avalon Park on the south side. So far, you should notice that most of the victims are consistent with the premise of the show. Now, certain things have pushed the data around a little bit, coronavirus, the protest, but um, males who are African-American, African-Americans are most likely to be shot by other African-American males. Danielle P. Jones, 30, was standing on the front porch about 2.50 a.m. in the 8100 8, block of South Woodland Avenue when a male walked up and fired shots, authorities said. Jones, who lived in Gresham, was hit in the chest and taken to the University of Chicago Medical Center where she was pronounced dead. The weekend's first homicide left a 23-year-old man dead Friday in Inglewood on the south side. So before I explain more about him, if you are listening, because I have followers on Twitter in Chicago, um, if you haven't followed me yet, do so, do, there, do so on Air Angel. Also, you can follow the Black Talk Radio Network on Twitter. One of the things I want to do is just go over the names again of the first few people that uh, their names were disclosed in the article. And if you know them, uh, you can send me a direct Twitter message on Air Angel or leave me a comment, um, leave a comment on the Black Talk Radio Network site. Go to B2B and click. You'll see the show where you can leave a comment. If you know any of these, these people we're mentioning, I'd like to hear from you. I'd like to hear what you miss about them. I'd like to hear how you think their deaths could have been prevented because one of the tenets of public health is that health events, both incidents and prevalence, can be prevented. Morbidity and mortality can be prevented. So how do their deaths could have been prevented? A few of the victims we mentioned so far, 
Bernardino Marcado, 26. Fernando de Leon, 34. Gregory Lewis, 21. And Daniel Jones, Daniel P. Jones. And her name is spelled D-A-N-Y-A-L. We're about 20 minutes into Victims to Victorious. We are talking about violence in Chicago, violence during the pandemic again. Um, what caught my attention in preparing for the show was 92 people were shot, 27 fatally in Chicago's most violent weekend. And this comes from the Sun-Times Media Wire article, Monday, June 1st. The title of today's show is Violence and the Virus. This weekend's first homicide, remember the date of the article, left this 23-year-old man, man dead Friday in Inglewood on the south side. Deontay Fleming was on the sidewalk about 7.08 p.m. in the 1200 block on West 70th Street when someone in the vehicle shot him in the chest, authorities said. Fleming, who lived in Scottsdale on the southwest side, was pronounced dead at the University of Chicago Medical Center at 7.37 p.m. So some of the hospitals that are mentioned, uh, Medical Center in Oak Lawn, Belmont um, Medical Central in Oak Lawn, um, and other hospitals are mentioned, Roseland Community Hospital, University of Chicago Medical Center. So what's important to know about this is that these hospital centers are acute and they can treat gunshot wound victims. Gunshot wound victims take a tremendous amount of resources in the ER. And one of the things I have been advocating and that it has been done in some places, in Chicago what needs to be done is that, and the cure violence people when we speak with them can talk more about this. Hospitals accept public money are required to take records and do something called uh, syndromic surveillance. So what I would like to see is that even though we know the, vic the victims are reticent to discuss who they think they shot them because many of them go out and shoot the person who shot them or his crew, one of the things that I know violence interrupters do is they identify the possibility of the retaliatory shooting. And what I'm asking emergency room physicians to do is not to say, Ray Ray, Daquan, you know who shot you, like the police do. What I want them to do is more of a medicalized risk assessment. And then from there, they could be assigned a counselor to deal with interpersonal violence so that they have better conflict resolution skills. And then in that process, perhaps knowing that the counselor is, you know, is bound by confidentiality, then the victim could disclose who would who else is at risk because of their shooting. The shooting. I remind the listeners that the first 48 hours has at least one or two episodes where all they do is interview people who were of interest at the time of shooting, and then they show that then those people are also dead. So it's a cyclical cycle of violence. COVID-19, although it's a pandemic, it doesn't have to be cyclical in this in this kind of a tight pattern because once most people are infected and not sick, sick, there's a type of immunity. But no one is really immune to the violence because you can become an accidental victim. 
Well, for those violence incidents that we could predict and interrupt, I'm asking African American men to take to take a personal responsibility. And given the climate of the police brutality, one of the questions that I want to ask the audience and hope people will react to me directly on air angel on Twitter or post a message on the Black Talk Radio Network, look for victims to victorious, is when these shootings occurred, many people were protesting the death in custody of George Floyd. What about protesting the death of Deontay Fleming? What about protesting the death of Daniel, Danielle P. Jones? What about protesting the death of, death of Gregory Lewis, who's 21 years old? What about protesting the death that we inflict on each other? How about that? So Deontay Fleming was shot around 7 p.m. in the 1200 block of West 70th Street when someone in a vehicle shot him in the chest and side. That's where we left off. The weekend's non-fatal shootings include a person shot while protecting an Avondale liquor store on the northwest side amid widespread looting in the cities and suburbs. The male was protecting the Benny's Beverage Depot about 10.30 p.m. at 3934 West of Mercy Avenue when gunshots rang out according to police. He was shot in the right arm and taken in good condition to Illinois Masonic Medical Center. Illinois Masonic Medical Center, University of Chicago Medical Center, Roseland Community Hospital. All these hospitals are dealing with gunshot wound victims in a pandemic where people at risk are older, of course, than the gunshot wound victims, are have a high risk of being not being able to breathe, which is the tertiary disease stage symptoms and succumbing to the illness. Several teenagers were also among the weekend's victims. A man and a 27-year-old boy were shot Sunday, Sunday night in Inglewood. They were sitting in a parked vehicle at 10.51 p.m. on Peoria Avenue when someone fired shots, police said. The teen was hit in the left arm and back, while the 24-year-old man was shot in the right arm. Both were taken in good condition to the University of Chicago Medical Center. Saturday night, another 17-year-old boy was wounded in Ravenswood Manor on the northwest side. He was riding in a vehicle about 3.15 a.m. on Mount Rose Avenue when he heard gunshots and realized he was hit in the arm, police said. Driver took him to Illinois Masonic Medical Center where he was listed in fair condition. One of the things I want to remind you, when we started the show, the, we're, we're just using an article. We're going to run out of time because the article details 92 people shot, 27 fatally. Most of the wounds were not fatal at this point. But remember two things. Gunshot wounds can become fatal later. In other words, you could walk up, leave the hospital, and die from your injuries days, months, or even a year later because of the damage to the organs. The other thing is we talk about morbidity in public health and mortality. Mortality means that your wounds are deadly. Morbidity means you become sick or injured. So of the people we see who were shot in the leg in this article, how many of them are, were going to be paralyzed? How many of them are going to have a leg or an arm amputated? How many of them are going to keep that arm or leg or have permanent neuropathy, meaning the nerves are damaged and they can't move it? How many of them have PTSD? Okay. 
So those are some of the things that I want you to think about. What can you do as an advocate? What can you do as a survivor? What can you do as a relative of the survivor? What can you do as a public health official, a policeman, an EMT? All these are questions I have for the audience. Send me your reactions, post them on the Black Talk Radio Network site, or send me a direct message on Twitter, on Air Angel. We have about 15 minutes to go. Today's show is 45 minutes long, not for lack of information. So, the 17-year-old boy was riding in the vehicle. He was shot 3.15 a.m. About 6.23 p.m., the 17-year-old was on Corkin Place where someone got out of a blue vehicle and fired shots. The teen was struck in the foot and taken to Rush University Medical Center where his condition was stabilized, police said. So did that young teenager lose a toe? Did he lose a foot? Was his ankle shattered? Those are all questions when you talk about the morbidity, how gunshot wounds make people sick. And that's another, we've heard that, um, that's another medical center in Chicago where they are contending with gunshot wound victims. At least 50 other people were hurt by gun violence as of of the publishing of this uh, article. 50 other people. Last weekend, Chicago saw its deadliest Memorial Day weekend in five years with 10 shot dead and 39 others wounded. And we did report on that. Early Monday, the Chicago Police Department announced that it would be delaying, repeat, delaying the release of its crime statistics from the month of May in light of recent activities and to ensure we have the most accurate statistics. So more than half of the weekend's victims were shot on Sunday as the city reeled from violent protests. And the article is 92 shots, 27 fatally in Chicago's most violent weekend of 2020. And I want to go back through the article and just review some of the ages. We, that, and we didn't get all 50 people. We have about, we have less than 15 minutes to go. Uh, Victims to Victorious is uh, 45 minutes today. We usually broadcast for an hour. So we have an 18-year-old. We have a 27-year-old. We have another 18-year-old. Uh, we have several 18-year-olds. Let me go back. We have an 18-year-old, an 18-year-old, another 18-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 39 and 31-year-old, a 37-year-old, a 26-year-old, a 34-year-old. So one of the things I want you as a listener to realize is there, that these, this victimology actually has a pattern. How many times have you heard of an 80-year-old person shot dead in the street? And if you hear about a three- or four-year-old shot dead in the street, he or she is not usually the intended victim. He or she is usually an unintended victim. Well, between the 17-year-old and the 34-year-old, who I believe is the oldest person mentioned in the article, they are intended victims. Look how many times the witnesses say, someone followed them in the car. Someone got out of the car. Someone ran up on them, to use the street language. They were intended. 
Notice in all these descriptions of all these victims, there is no robbery. A bicycle isn't taken. A purse isn't taken. A wallet isn't taken. These are personal killings. And most African-American men are killed by relatives, acquaintances, often business partners, be they legit or illegit, or relatives. These are not stranger killings. I want the profoundness of that to to rest on to rest on your ears. Now, one of the technologies that's mentioned here is the shot spotter alert. I'm going to review that little piece. Officers responding to a shot spotter alert about 7:19 p.m. in the 2900 block of West 63rd Street found. They found Fernando de Leon, 34, with multiple gunshot wounds. He was taken to Christ Medical Center in Oakland where he was pronounced dead. Now, the way shot spotter works in a city is that several sensors are placed all around the city and they evaluate sound. They evaluate the distance. They evaluate the magnitude. They evaluate the frequency of the sound. If you have a... um, alarm in your home like I do with a, where I live, with a um, glass break sensor. Your, my glass break sensor will come off whether I'm in the house or go on, I should say, whether I'm in the house or off because it registers a tone and an intensity of a sound. Now, critics of ShotSpotter say that all the sounds that are registered are not necessarily gunshot wounds, gunshots. And the makers of it are, are working on that. In preparing for the show, one of the things I thought was very interesting is that the CEO of ShotSpotter said, I'm paraphrasing him, he said it's a sad commentary on our society that his corporation has to make these devices. Let that sink in. Now, when they sell them to you, when you get your alarm, and there are people who have shot spotter in their um, home, in their home alarm bundle or program. When you get this alarm, the police tell you, well, you're going to be able to know about gunshot wounds in your home. Now, we, we've gone over this many times. Most children who are shot in the home are shot by the, a gun that's owned by their mama or daddy. Most white men who live in a home with a gun who choose to kill themselves Use a gun that's already been there. I don't see the prevention, okay? Now, the police believe it helps them respond faster to where the location of the sound, the pinging, and then the, you know, the pinging that tells them approximately where it is. If you have an iPhone and you do find my phone or you have relatives that let you, take a look at it a couple times while I'm talking to you. Um, for instance, there's an address where um, my children live, where I live sometimes. <laughs> and when I check on them, it gives two different addresses. Now, I know why, because their house is on a corner. And one of the addresses faces the corner, but the front door is not on the corner. Well, I know that because I visit my children many times. but when the police get there and the address is not totally accurate, then what happens? 
anyone using GPS knows, a GPS-enabled device, you have had an incident where the address was not 100% accurate. So the 911 call that a human being makes may not describe everything accurately, but reliant on after people start shooting, I don't see the validity of it. I see it as a fallacy because the police, the, the police are arriving after the person is shot. Now, some people may argue that once the police get there, if there's a conflict with a group of people or other people wish to go home and get their gun, go to their car and get the gun, that this might stop that immediate retaliatory shooting. But in the context of a public health model, I'm asking you how the shot spotter really helps. Now, if you're at home and shot spotter goes off, the paramedics will respond if you live in a nice suburb with a good response time. And you, if you have been shot, may have a better chance of surviving the gunshot wound injury because you got help earlier. In this article, we talked about people who were driven to the hospital by a friend or acquaintance or relative. And what we do know that very oftentimes, because black and brown people have issues with the system that white people don't have in the same amount of numbers, is some of the black and brown people, for instance, the black and brown people with a Spanish surname, maybe they're Dominican and they're illegal. Maybe they are, maybe they are from Cuba and they're illegal, but their friend has been shot and they don't want any extra encounters with the police because the police are called for gunshot wound victims. So let's also take a look at that. If the public health model says we should prevent that, what happens when these young men show up in the emergency room? Does calling the police motivate them to tell who their shooters are? If they A, plan to have a retaliatory shooting, or B, it is a friend or relative, the argument got out of control. What if a young man is shot by his stepfather and his father is incarcerated? And this is his mother's boyfriend and he pays the bills and has a job. These things need to be worked out. We need a, a program that prevents the shooting. All of this talking I'm doing is after the fact. And of the 27 fatalities, 92 people were shot in Chicago as of the writing of this article, Sometimes Media Wire. Send me a direct message and I can send you the article. My sound engineer will post it as well for you to look at. But that is, a, that is okay, 27 people died, 92 people were shot. I'm trying to do the math. I believe that's 65 people who survived all of this melee. But what kind of illnesses do they have? What kind of PTSD do they have? Will they get help for it? Uh, will they become violent in their next dealing with someone who has an interpersonal conflict. So right now, many people are protesting the killing of George Floyd. As were you, I'm outraged every time a white policeman, especially one with 98 complaints, is still out here on the street. When marching, brothers and sisters, make sure you ask and I say ask, ask for something. The physical restraints used on Eric Gardner and on George Floyd 
those should be outlawed in the United States of America. Most police departments accept Department of Justice money. So Department of Justice money comes with, it comes with incentives. It comes with caveats. So one of the things that people advocating for less police violence could ask for is that these types of restraints, chokeholds, leaving an arrestee on the chest, even an in-shape person can suffocate because of chest compression, especially if the hands are behind their back or another person has their weight on their chest. These are things that we can get rid of in the police system. And I, I had a show last week where I talked about the places in the world that don't arm the police readily. Many things have changed. For decades, Great Britain did not give policemen handguns. Now, 49% of the people in Great Britain now, post 911 and other um, jihadist type attacks, have decided the police should have it. But the police there do not all carry weapons. So in countries where the police do not all carry weapons regularly, the United States should ask itself, can we move to that model? It may seem outrageous, given how America was founded. I've told the listeners, I've lived in New England where you still see the armories, places where the revolutionary soldiers and other white male landowners would stock their guns in case they had to use them. And of course they did against the British. Those structures are still standing. So my question becomes, what if our society could move to that? The FBI has published statistics and the person who's most likely to shoot another white policeman is another white man, not an African-American male teenager. But those policemen who patrol our cities act as if we are the enemy on site. That's all there is to it. And so I'm also asking for the police departments who are interacting with the protesters to de-escalate and use interpersonal conflict. There are lots of messages on the media showing policemen being empathetic. Sure there are. But here we're talking on public health always about the illness. How do we eradicate the illness? We don't talk about the healthy people. We talk about the people who are at risk, who's at risk for COVID-19. And one of the things that has emerged about, emerged about COVID-19, first, there were many, many more white people infected. And many of the first people we ever hear about are on the cruise ships. Well, who's on those cruise ships cleaning up? Black and brown people. So eventually, they are going to be infected. But where the white people are complaining they can't get off the island, I'm using hyperbole here, the black and brown people may not have healthcare access because we live in the realm of healthcare disparity. So adding all of this on top of gun violence in Chicago, my question to you is how long are we going to live, African-American and Latino people? I've disclosed that I'm both. How long are we going to live under siege? How much can we do ourselves to release ourselves from the morbidity and the mortality brought on by diseases that don't kill people with better health care access and by gun violence that only kills us disproportionately. Those are the questions I have for you today. I want to thank you for supporting the Black Talk Radio Project. 
You can make a donation. Go to the Black Talk Radio Project and click on the Donate button. My name is Angel Fall. You've been listening to Victim to Victorious. We have been talking about the violence and the virus in Chicago. See you next week.